Hello. Ah, now that I've got your attention, I'd like a quick word about how Cambridge 105 Radio is funded. Our job is to give a voice to those groups who may not otherwise be heard. That may be our support for local music or the charity of the month. You're wanting to know how you can help, aren't you? Well, you can support our advertisers. And when you use their services, say you heard about them on Cambridge 105 Radio. And you can make a donation. It all goes towards our upkeep. We're eco-friendly, but we do have a bit of an electricity bill. Visit cambridge105.co.uk and click on the donate button. And thank you for listening. Serving our university city and South Cambridgeshire. This is Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello and welcome to Arts Roundup, where we'll delve into a few interesting corners of the Cambridge art scene and discover an immersive gallery with a difference. Hear about films being made by local filmmakers on two continents and sample a biography of an intriguing lady. In this edition... We join artist Kate Goodridge and owner Jamie Allison at Art of Float to find out how to get in touch with inspiration and creativity in two surprising ways in the same extraordinary place. Cambridge-based filmmaker Oggy Tomic talks on a range of exciting projects he's been working on and gives insight on a difficult job. And author Simon Boyd takes us through his new book Lady Sybil, which gives an account of major events in world history through his grandmother's letters and diaries as daughter of Earl Grey. If you were feeling a little low in your spirits during the cold month of February, you might find coming up with some inspiration for new artwork a little hard at times. But what if we dropped you stark naked into a large warm flotation tank full of Epsom salts for buoyancy and remove all sensation and light and let the troubled mind gently snorkel off into its deepest recesses, relaxing you and lifting away your worldly woes while you just think in comfortable solitude? You might just come up with a new idea or two from an altered state and in a tank that looks like something from the sci-fi thriller Minority Report, a film where precognitives telepathically predicted crimes while suspended in a flotation tank and, believe it or not, policemen in Cambridge actually use it to hone their detective senses. I discovered that's what artists, athletes, policemen, airmen, students, people needing pain relief, pregnant women and just the plain stressed out from life are doing at Cambridge Art of Float Gallery in Hawthorne Way. I took the plunge both into the art of photographer Kay Goodridge and the flotation tank with the help of Art of Float owner Jamie Allenson, who says the combination of art and flotation reduces us to a relaxed meditative state that's highly beneficial. First of all, um, Jamie, um, tell, me, um, tell, me, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to be doing this. Um, I'm a bit of an entrepreneur, I guess you would say. I've been working in the digital industry for many years um, and then I started using flotation therapy myself discovered it over in Vancouver in America um, and used to travel to London to do it. I discovered that it was a, a very useful tool. It, um, it's good for mental health and physical health. Uh, so I decided to, to start this venture myself in Cambridge and introduce flotation therapy to Cambridge about two years ago now. Now, um, flotation um, therapy uh, dates back to the 1960s, doesn't it? It does, yeah. A chap called John C. Lilly invented it, and it was somewhat different back then where you had to wear breathing apparatus and, and wait to submerge you in the water. Um, the, also, the equipment was very noisy, so you didn't get full sensory deprivation. Um, hence why it probably wasn't very popular until more recent years when the equipment became more advanced. Um, 
and a little sleeker and more comfortable to use. Now, uh, having had a, a, a little glimpse um, earlier um, mm-hmm. of your flotation tank, it looks like something out of um, a space-age movie. Um, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to going, going in there and, and, and experimenting with it. But first of all, tell me a little bit about the art gallery side of what you've got here, because you've got some quite interesting prints and paintings around. The gallery side of the business is... I've, personally have artists in the family and a, and a passion for art and I think art and flotation really complement each other. What we tried to do here is have a, a real contrast so you walk into an art gallery that's very sensory stimulating um, and then you go into the back into, into sensory deprivation so sensory stimulation at the front and deprivation at the back um, and what we do in the gallery is every month we have a new exhibition um, okay, creatives are always looking for new ways to unlock um, creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, does it really do that? Can it unlock creativity? Can it give you moments of heightened awareness? A lot of people think so, and, and I personally think so. Um, it's, it's like the old saying, sleep on it, I always say. Um, if you haven't got an answer to something, you sleep on it. You let your subconscious work that out for you. And, and floating for an hour is like that, but to the extreme. It releases endorphins, you know, the, the chemical that in, in, encourages happiness, and when you're floating in there, your imagination can run wild. Is that like being back in the womb? A lot of people describe it as being back in the womb. Some people describe it as sort of floating it out in space. You become very unaware of your body. The temperature of the air and the water is 37 degrees, which is body temperature. So after a while, you can't feel where your body starts and ends. And obviously, there's half a tonne of Epsom salt in 30 centimetres of water, so it's more dense than the Dead Sea. So you're relieved from gravity, you're in total darkness, you can't see, hear or feel anything. So what happens to the mind under those circumstances? I would say for the first 15 minutes, the mind races. Um, You've got nothing in there except for your own mind, which some people tend to run a mile from. But it's extremely healthy to do that once in a while. Um, so your mind will race, thoughts will pop into your head but there will become a period of time where you go I've just thought about absolutely nothing for an extended period of time it induces a theta brain state, that's the science behind the process Can you profile the kind of customers that come in here to use Art of Float? Uh, Very vaguely I would say everybody and anyone but we we have mixed martial arts, fighters, professional athletes using it for the enhanced performance side of things and muscle recovery then we have people who suffer from pain rheumatoid arthritis me ms um students who are using it to to relax or the busy sort of young professionals i would say who are burning the candle at both ends um taking an hour to to recuperate physically and mentally is uh is certainly becoming very common in cambridge why do people from the armed forces and the police want to use it very stressful jobs, and so we have a lot of pilots from the from the US Air Force who uh, are doing lots of long flights and so on, um, who are using it for that de-stressing and obviously sitting sitting and flying a plane, your 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 stature is hunched over. We have a lot of people who are in the office who are hunched over at the computer a lot. So to lay back and open the diaphragm whilst whilst floating is very useful for that. Okay, it sounds uh, really exciting. Let's do it. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> so, what happens next? So, you're, you're, you're going to take a shower, because you showered before, and then you're going to head through these doors, which you can hear. The, these are acoustic glass doors. The, this room in here 
is completely suspended from the structure of the building with anti-vibrational clips to stop any low-frequency vibrations. Then a double layer of soundproofing on every, every wall to stop the high frequency. And then once you're in there, you will hear nothing from the outside. You'll notice that the air and the water in that room are 37 degrees, so body temperature. And you're going to lay back in the, in the water. Now, it's more dense than the Dead Sea because there's half a tonne of Epsom salt in 30 centimetres of water. So when you lay back, you're going to float. You'll be relieved from gravity. Um, for the first five minutes, there's relaxing music on the underwater speakers and ambient lighting. After five minutes of you laying back, just winding down, getting used to the fact that you're floating, which is quite novel in itself, the music will fade out, the lights will fade out, and you'll transition into complete darkness, total silence, and that's how you will stay for the rest of the hour. And then at the end of the session, the music comes back on, the lights come back on, and you know it's time to come back to the real world. Um, you'll come out feeling more alert, more completely refreshed. Okay, so I'm now about to descend into the flotation tank. Okay, I've just come out of the flotation tank. Um, it was a really, um, it's, it's quite a stimulating experience really. It's not what you expect, is it? I certainly would say the first time you, you have a float, I describe it as an experience. Although it's sensory deprivation, all the different elements having no sound, no light, being relieved from gravity is quite stimulating. It kind of reminded me of a line from Othello, which was, um, leave me but a little bit to myself. And it's that little bit to yourself that goes floating yes. in the flotation tank, isn't it's it? It's probably the, the most to-yourself time <laughs> that you've had. I mean, I felt it was a little bit like sort of snorkelling in your own soul, basically. You, you kind of... You, you're in the water, so it's, like, it's almost like swimming in a certain sense. You have no sense of your own um, body or anything. Um, you have mm -hmm. all pressure taken off every part of you, um, and then you sort of, you're allowed to sort of float into your own mind and thoughts in, in, a, in a really very pleasurable and relaxing way. It's amazing. <laughs> I love that description, snorkelling in your own soul. <laughs> you came up with that after floating, which demonstrates the creativity and locking little thoughts like that. I'm glad you've experienced that yourself. Um, and, and also there's the sensory... Uh, I mean, when the lights go out, uh, you get that feeling, um, mm -hmm. don't you, that um, you really can't feel anything at all. Um, yeah. And that, that kind of um, just uh, releases you from lots of things in life, basically, doesn't it? It's a very, very finely tuned environment. And what, just one of those elements, if it wasn't completely dark, if it wasn't completely soundproof, you wouldn't get that total sensory deprivation, which allows your brain to completely switch off. Well, I'm going to feel slightly strange when I go back out into the street after that. Um, thank you very yeah. much indeed for a most interesting experience. You're very welcome. Thanks. I was lucky enough to find Kate Goodrich at the gallery, and she took me through her allegorical photographic work in her latest exhibition. What do you try to do with your art? Is it sort of allegorical? It's all about your life and experiences? Um, or, or what It's not just about my life. Um, probably... Half of it that's here is about my life. Um, and then a lot of the other work that I do is I work with a lot of different people. I've worked quite a lot with um, recently with refugees and um, I'm particularly interested in working with women. Um, and I do a lot of um, workshops with people as well um, so that they... I'm really 
into people um, expressing their creativity. And if I can encourage people to do that, it's, it's great. You know, and I, I love doing that. I've done it for a long time. Do you use the flotation tanks yourself? I haven't used it. Mm. I might have a go, though, because mm. I'm going to be here for a while. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And and, and I'm just thinking, I mean, you you have some very bright and colourful images here. Some Mm -hmm. of them are are photographic, some of them are uh, um, displayed in in, in, um, showcases and things like Mm -hmm. that. Um, What what do you try to do? You try to capture basically um, a moment that is um, in some way uh, poignant. Is that what you're trying to do? Well, in this work, Mm -hmm. which is called A Living Archive, Mm -hmm. uh, Reading Between the Lines. Uh, this is a very specific piece that I'm still working on. Um, and in this one, I have looked at all my old diaries. And I, as I was getting to be 60, I was thinking, mm-hmm. I might not be living. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, you sort of start thinking, it's, you're on your way <laughs> out rather than on your way in, sort of thing. So I thought, I don't want people reading my diaries um, if I die for any reason, not that I'm intending to, I have to say. But um, so what I did was I went through all my diaries, or I'm going through all my diaries, rereading them, taking out poignant bits, and then um, making the diary into some sort of object that is relevant to whatever is in it. So for some of them, I burnt them, some I've grown, some I've um, buried. Um, and some I've cut the middle out and um, folded up the bits so of paper. So you've deliberately distressed and, and attached yeah, your diaries yes. and then turned them into artworks. So yeah. It's a really wonderful yeah. idea. And, yeah. and not only, so these are the artworks, mm. um, <laughs> and then these are the images. So then I photographed the artworks mm. to make them mm. into different artworks. And, and I'm also into writing, so I've stopped writing my diary now. But I do write a lot of poetry what, what do you use to create these? I mean, what, what, what materials are you using and how do you go about it? Um, well, on the slate, I'm using liquid emulsion mm-hmm. in a dark room, mm-hmm. so that makes whatever surface I'm doing become photosensitive mm-hmm. and then I can print on it. Um, and I also copy a lot of images and then I would put it onto acetate again in the dark room and... and um, and print it. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me a little bit about the experiences of your life, because obviously, if you caught, recorded them in a diary, there must be yeah. lots of things that, <laughs> that, that uh, had impact on you and influenced your art. Well, what were mm. they? The work here mm-hmm. is actually about child abuse, so mm-hmm. that is something that has been mm-hmm. that I've experienced, mm-hmm. um, and I want to do a piece of work about it. There's a lot more work than that, and it incorporated some writing and some film and things like that. Um, and then another diary is that is influenced by um, I actually buried that diary in a position that was a very significant position for me because I used to drive up there and I had to make a decision about going one way in my life or another at this particular T junction. So I buried the diary at that T junction and then I came back and dug it up. <laughs> and then from then on, I wasn't worried about the um, the situation at all, it, and I had been worried about it for about twenty years. It, it sounds so. Like you go on lots of artistic adventures, basically, um, um, to, to, yeah. to get to grips with what you're feeling and doing. <laughs> I suppose I, I I kind of write a lot and I think a lot and I make a lot, 
Um, and that's what I like doing. And, um, you know, I, I imagine I'm going to do that forever, really. Uh, well, uh, Kate Gridges, thank you very much indeed for talking to me. And obviously there's lots of people arriving here to have a look around. So um, I, I, I'm going to have a wonder. Thank you very much indeed. Great, thanks. thanks. Arts Roundup with Simon Burton on Cambridge 105 Radio. Making documentary films is an ambition many young people in Cambridge would like to realise as they try it out on the streets in amateur fashion on college projects. Plenty of grown-ups do it too, but it's certainly not easy to get paid work and be recognised as a filmmaker with the credentials that people will take note of. Cambridge-based documentary filmmaker Oggy Tomic has shown something of a talent for surviving, both literally and in the film business with all its challenges, having worked initially on an autobiographical work about his experiences as an orphan growing up in war-torn Bosnia in the 1990s called Finding Family. Lately, he's been working on a wide range of projects, including filming a biography of the Queen, a further piece on the war in the Balkans, a highly successful film about Van Gogh's life, and also the work of Cambridge United Trust in the city. It's hoped Salair of Roses, a film set in the Balkans, which he's understandably proud of, will soon be screened in Cambridge after having been released in America. So, first of all, um, Oggy, tell me a little bit about yourself. Now, you made, I mean, you, you grew up in war-torn Bosnia, um, having um, lost um, track of your parents, um, and you made um, a film called Finding Family um, about the whole experience of, yeah. of trying to retrace after coming back to the UK your family. That was a huge success, um, had a royal premiere at um, Leicester Square, um, and told your story, which was uh, quite an extraordinary story, wasn't it? Yes, it was a it was a very hard story to tell. It was it was something very little that started at university, uh, called Mum, and then uh, I always thought, well, it's not doing it justice back then. So we went back and did it properly, but didn't think it was going to really take the 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 TV and film markets by 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 such a success, which was a great thing um, to see it in Leicester Square. Um, red carpets to see it over in the United States, all over Europe, and it was a you know looking back at it, a, it was a great experience, and b it's something that you know I'll be proud for the rest of my life. Now, a bit, having been a, a, a war child, as it were, um, this is um, actually, um, in, in terms of experience, very useful in today's world because we're looking at terrible things happening in, in Syria and places like that where people are going through those experiences. You must actually have a, a much deeper understanding of what those people are going through. Um, and, um, I mean, things like the White Hats, um, you know, um, who are these people who, who go into these war zones um, and try to rescue injured people and try and deal with what's really happening on a humanitarian level. So um, that must be great as a filmmaker to have that um, extra um, set of gears in terms of understanding a situation as serious as that. Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I watched the actual White Helmets, as I think it's called, um, and it was a beautiful, uh, beautifully done uh, film. Um, and, yeah, it's it's something that I would 
possibly one day like to be involved to make that difference and help through the means of film. But um, yes, Syria and where where they operate is quite a a whole different story to Balkans. Even when I see it on the on the news and uh, and, and and in the media, uh, it's it's. It, it, it's shocking and then people say well you've been through it it's exactly what you've been through and but i don't see it that way so what they do is quite extraordinary and you know um would be great to to follow up on on the work that they do but the access i think would be almost impossible to, to those well, would, it, would it be an impossible thing for you to go back into a war zone and, and make an, um, a film about something like that would that be just too much for someone in your position no i i said to my wife uh it's something I would love to do. If it, someone knocked on my door and sent me an email saying, come on, go. Uh, but she was like, no, no way you will you will go. But I, I, I would love to go. It's, you know, war photography and filmmaking is something that I'm really passionate about. And I, and I love current affairs and would love to be in position to kind of work on those stories to, to, to tell, which would change people's lives and you know media has a very very strong influence and making films is what I love to do uh, and I'm passionate about and I always say you know when I die I hope you know a camera will be buried with me um, so I, I I just think we uh, we and especially myself we, we have you know we filmmakers have a power, a very good power in our hands with a camera and a lens to, to tell a story and make a difference in life. And they, therefore, that's why I would like to go into it. But there's so much what I, uh, red tape nowadays to film and photograph anyone. Like in, if you look at the, the histor- historical um, uh, 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 ways of people reporting, the photographers of reporting the war and, and filmmakers, you know, they will show the rawness of it. Like... Uh, um, uh, you know, seeing a child, uh, you know, dead in the street, you know, and all that. But now you will never see that. And it's almost like masked for people not to see the, the truth, which I understand it can be very disturbing and upsetting. But if we don't know those things, then... Now, you're working on several new pro- um, projects at the moment, aren't you? Um, what are they? I, mean, I gather one of them's called Salera of Roses, is yeah. that right? Yeah, so one of the projects that we're, just, we're still finishing, which has started 22 years ago, so I was a child, uh, but it started, in a sense, through photographs, and I was brought on board a project that's been going on for years but has never actually gone very much uh, in terms of production, so... Uh, Roger, the director of the film, asked me to come on board as a, as a cinematographer and executive producer and, and so on and so forth to help bring it to life. And, um, yeah, it tells a story of uh, three um, uh, characters, or shall I say those who have survived the war. So one of them are uh, 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 just a normal, you know, nine-to-five lady who, 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 who would dress every day for work, uh, no matter what, she, you know, she, she, she said, you know, if I'm going to die, I want to die with, with dignity and, and respect. So um, she was captured through his... So basically the story follows his photographs that he captured of people uh, fighting uh, through the battle and, 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 and survival. Um, and then there's the other... The, the, the second uh, character is uh, called Asim, who is a... Um, a surgeon, so he um, amputee, uh, who would you know who who worked on all the all the people that 
that was, you know, sadly struck by a massacre or were involved in shooting or or or, 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 or shelling of the capital. And then, of course, we have the orphans of Sarajevo, which uh, I was one in the war, which would just basically be, uh, which we which we were loose loose you know kids going on on a rampage of the city and uh, not worrying about being shot by a sniper. So yeah, the story the story is primarily um, of Roger's experience, um, which is led by his voiceover and follows all these lovely. Uh, stories of of people who are now um, doing completely different things in lives and and are successful in what they do and um, it's been it's it's a pleasure to work on such a thing, but I have to say you know uh, working on another war film it might be very difficult for me because I want people to move away from it. I'm talking about those difficulties. What what have been the problems that you've encountered in pulling together a film like that? Um, the biggest problem really is. Um, is, is is money i mean unfortunately um i'm not talking about you know uh, hollywood blockbuster movie money but uh, a lot of people love to watch a movie and go to cinema but are not necessarily willing to support independent cinema and there's a there are a lot of talented people out there who are just eager to uh create their story whether it's a documentary which i'm you know passionate and i'm into or i have friends who are into fiction and they are so talented in writing it but making those things into reality is the biggest challenge and sarah roses as well as the finding family would be a lot better and different project not necessarily technically because that's partly what those films you know documentaries is about is being raw being bold being um, you know, telling a story rather than, oh, you know, showing, you know, cinematic stuff every time and on every in every film. But purely paying licenses for music, for archive material, for photographs. And what about the actual technical challenges of, of filming and the special effects and, and things like that? Because, um, I mean, in, in the past I've, I've, I've um, you know, read about um, people who have had to uh, develop their special ways of using their cameras and things like that to get the effects that they wanted. Um, uh, have there been technical challenges that you've encountered? Um, no, I consider myself a little bit of a geek when it comes to cameras and lenses and uh, a lot of my friends and family call me <laughs> a bit of a geek so to speak so uh, i i have a camera or lens for every every eventuality and i i i, I kind of i love ch- i love the challenge i love making something you know um possible uh, out of very little when it comes to equipment um but obviously you know the better equipment that you have the better your 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 end end film will be um in in the case of us making our film the biggest challenge really is um technically is just uh just keeping up with 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 with, with the story and, and and having a reliable camera that's not just gonna you know shut off in the middle of a conversation which in documentary world as you can appreciate you can't just say oh can we just repeat that again because then it ru- loses the whole purpose and 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 loses the whole kind of uh story having to stop someone be you know just about as to they were to become emotional or cry or whatever so oh sorry let me just change my battery so it is important to have a a camera that can just handle that but then of course you know it comes planning ahead and so on and so forth so um having a decent decent camera that you can rely on is is i would say 
a a big plus if you can achieve to to have one you know um like um on on our film our biggest challenge i'd say on saturday roses let's say was shooting aerial stuff uh purely because um now there's they they're clamping down on aerial, aerial drones and you know in bosnia the law is not as strict as in the united states or united kingdom but still um doesn't mean you can fly it wherever you want and however you want so it must be the, the ultimate toy for a filmmaker is, is dr- the invention of drones it's like something out of a fantasy isn't it to be able to take your camera to all kinds of places that you were never able to do before yeah yeah my my, my brother bought a first phantom that came on the market and i thought he was bonkers uh when he did it and but he never used it so he never went near it but he just bought it because he liked the idea of it and the drones have become so compact and to to be honest with you it kind of scares me that you can go buy a drone as a 13 year old and they won't even ask you like you know uh, are you capable of flying one and it's a bit crazy because for me you can actually kill a person with one of those things and there should be very strict guidelines who can buy them how they can buy them and of course the the UK is bringing these laws and 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 and, and restrictions but um i just don't think it's going to stop people from from being stupid and doing stupid things which then has a domino effect on us you know who really care where we fly and how we fly and how we use it so so um when will salera of roses actually be finished right well salera of roses uh, we are planning to do two things with uh, one is to have a, a theater- theatrical release um so that it's it's shown at cinemas but uh, Roger's dream as well is also to travel and give talks at universities and colleges and educate the younger generation of what happened in the past and to kind of, obviously, because, you know, the world is only young. I know it sounds uh, cliche to say, but it is. And, you know, if you educate nowadays generation, then hopefully they can help prevent what happened in the Balkans and what happens now in Syria and do something about it because... I know war in the Balkans is now, in my eyes, it's all story, it's history, and one should just move on, not forget, but just move on and do something else. But I think we must be reminded of what humans are capable of and prevent, you know, unnecessary and, 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 um, you know unnecessary wars because we don't need them we, why 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 does world need it wouldn't it be not i mean it's not it's never going to happen sadly but you know we have a power in the media as filmmakers as radio presenters broadcasters uh producers we have a power in our hand at the click of a button to make a story and make that difference you know i was watching something the other day on the on the on the, on the tv and you know, uh, someone was being, a girl was being arrested for 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 evading uh, her her own forced marriage, and uh, before she was returned back to her home country, she tweeted to an activist who is a filmmaker about what had happened, and within hours, the the, the video went viral, and uh, her extradition was stopped. You know, and that's something that I think is quite a powerful thing to be have to have and, and van gogh what's this other thing about van gogh yes no and van gogh i've worked on a on a on a very interesting project i mean i it was I, i'd say it was as much of a highlight of my 
career as 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 a, I mean, you know, everything that I do, I see it as a highlight. But Van Gogh was one of those um, projects I was brought on board by David Bickerstaff, uh, who's uh, behind the film, and uh, purely it came off the back of some uh, some work I've done uh, with him extensively for Her Majesty's ninetieth uh, birthday, uh, where we were capturing. Uh, uh, Her Majesty's uh, uh, life um, for Royal Archives, and then obviously I was going to give it to the BBC, and then that went really well. And then uh, he brought me on board to do a uh, to be a cinematographer on Van Gogh's documentary, where they the way they just shut down the entire museum in uh, in Amsterdam for us to work at, which I thought was just you know imagine having all those paintings just well to yourself really because they remove all the bodies they remove everything and you have the whole museum um throughout the night uh and a, and a day as well to to just capture and and really uh, tell a story of 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 his work the film's been a huge success it's toured um the cinema uh cross country and it's still now it's in the united states now um so one could easily you know get more information on it just by searching in google uh um exhibition on screen vincent van gogh and um they can get their 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 access to copy but it was a highlight of a career because it was very it's it it's a film that you have to do it was completely different to finding family in a sense that you have to be very um cinematic about how you approach the story very visual very careful very every shot has a very you know a story um so it wasn't you know running gun as we call it in the industry it was very locked off tripod you know very well framed shots and you know um it's so it's nice to do those things i love you know running around and shooting stuff and 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 capturing lovely stories but sometimes it's lovely to have that regimented um style um Augie Tomic, thank you very much indeed for coming in to talk to us no thank you it's been a pleasure to have a talk to you well, he's also currently in talks to make two other films in Africa next year to look at the lives of African children with severe medical problems and disabilities who are in dire straits and desperately need help. His talent for getting to the heartstrings of a story will no doubt continue to be in high demand. Serving our University City and South Cambridgeshire. This is Cambridge 105 Radio. When it comes to recounting a privileged and often precarious life during the era of the Russian Revolution, the declining British Empire and the suffragettes, there can't have been many women with the kind of life experiences to relate, as Lady Sybil Grey, daughter of Earl Grey, whose biography came out last month. Simon Boyd, her grandson, is author of the work Lady Sybil, which is based on her letters and diaries begun during her childhood in Northumberland and then continued when she went with her father Earl Grey to Canada before the First World War and later to Russia. She lived long enough to see the space age begun and led a life that witnessed many events that shaped the course of history. Later Lady Sybil Middleton, she was invited to Russia in the First World War to set up a British Red Cross hospital in St Petersburg, the then capital of Russia, to treat wounded Russian soldiers. The hospital was taken over by the Russian Revolution and she herself was wounded in the face during action at the front. Simon, who spent much time in Africa as a VSO in the Sudan and later as an educational publisher, previews his work with a passage from the book. It was a glorious day. People on the bridge were laughing and talking about ten, ten deep across the road. When looking down the Nevsky Prospect, which is the great avenue, 
I suddenly saw soldiers lie down in the snow about a hundred yards down by Sedovia and fire a volley into the people on the bridge. As soon as the people saw the soldiers lie down, they scattered, but about seven men were caught in the volley while others crawled away on their hands and knees. We had ten casualties brought in, three died, two women, almost immediately. After that, the fat was in the fire. The soldiers had fired on the people. Now nothing could stop the revolution. It sounds as though she went through a lot of experiences. What are the key points in the book, uh, the key moments that that, that you're trying to get across to people? Um, And what does this tell us about her life as a person? Well, I think the key moments in the book um, were uh, her time in Canada, uh, which she adored, and where she uh, where she saw a, a land which was open for opportunity, really, for for for, for all all people, not just from people who came from very well uh, well off society like she did in in Britain but for, for anyone who was prepared to work hard. Um, and then, most, most definitely, the Russian episode. Uh, as you say, it, it was sort of epic time. Um, uh, she didn't know when she went out to um, Russia in wartime that it, it was going to have a revolution. Um, so she got to know the old regime, as it was, um, but she became ever more critical of it as it became ever more incompetent. And, um, and she said, uh, you know, all the society people I know here want a revolution or say they want a revolution. Um, so the, the Russia, I think, is the, the central core of the book. Mm-hmm. And... Did, but, she keep, did she keep um, diaries of all of the events that happened in her life, and were those accessible to you in creating this um, biography of her life? Uh, yeah, um, she kept she, she, she kept letters and diaries, and um, the, 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 I'd, I'd heard about these stories about Rasputin and uh, and the revolution. Uh, but the the key thing was when we came on a trunk, an old cabin trunk, quite big, um, full of her letters and diaries from Russia, from France, which she went on to after Russia, um, uh, from Canada. Um, and indeed, actually, for the whole of the rest of her life, she kept a diary. Um, so... I suddenly realised that there was a complete life to be written there. And I think it's also... It's against the backdrop where she was born into a world where the British Empire was everything, and particularly her father, Earl Grey, was completely... he, He was completely dedicated to the Empire, and... uh and and hoped hoped to expand it really, and and saw it as a source of of all um, uh, sort of good governance spreading across the world, um, uh, rule of law and and all of that. And so so that was what she inherited when she 
was a young woman, but across her, as she lived her life, the empire went into decline and finally, uh, and finally faded away. So her life was lived against, against the, the backdrop of these big historical events. Um, so um, um, basically she seems to have led um, a privileged life, um, but also a life of being able to witness a lot of things that happened um, from that privileged position. But um, is it about her kind of moral compass within that? Is that what the book is about, basically, how she felt about the events that she witnessed? Yes, I think, I think she comes across as a, um, a, a, a dedicated, a serious person, actually, um, although she could be, she, 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 she could be uh, quite fun-loving and, uh, and play jokes on people, but she was basically uh, dedicated to, um, in Russia, to uh, uh, rolling out a, a, an excellent service for uh, the, the Russian servicemen. It wasn't for officers at all. It was for Russian... Uh, soldiers uh, in their care. Um, she 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 was serious. She uh, I, I suppose you could talk about her moral compass. Um, uh, one of the things I su- I've, was a bit surprised to find out was that she didn't appear to have been a, a great fan of the suffragettes. Uh, the only the only reference she makes to them is a rather disparaging one about a society lady suffragette who gives up on her hunger strike in prison. And my gra- my grandmother says, you know, why on earth would she do that? I wonder. Um, but uh, she she was she and her mother were very very much aware of the opening up of opportunities for women. The, uh, because I, th- I think she was concerned absolutely with delivering a good medical service through it. But um, she was there for Rasputin's murder. And as it happens, um, a driver for the Anglo-Russian hospital, which was her hospital, was also... Uh, the same man was a driver for the um, uh, somebody called Reina, who was the uh, MI6 or SIS man in in Petrograd, who was a friend of Prince Yusupov, who shot Rasputin, and and recently it's been alleged that uh, he was driving. Uh, the, uh, backwards and forwards as this plot allegedly happened. Um, another part of uh, my grandmother's um, sort of brush with espionage is that a cousin of hers, a, a step-cousin of hers, was actually somebody called um, Stuart Mingis, who became the head of uh, SIS. He became um, a C. Um, in the in the Second World War, so uh, he, he was actually his name Mingis. Uh, he he was the model for M. Oh, was he? Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it sounds so. This is a family story that, uh, because it touches on so many important parts of mm-hmm. um, history, that really has to be told. It's a book that you had to write, isn't it? I think I had to write it. I think I had to write it partly 
partly to give her voice because uh, although she might have come from an important family, if you go to the Grey um, uh, papers which are held at the University of Durham, it's almost all um, the papers of important men uh, in her family and of her time. So I, I really wanted to give voice to her and also to her mother. I never expected to hear my great-grandmother's voice. I didn't even know her name, actually, uh, before I started this whole process. And, uh, and, and she writes well as well. She, uh, she, she, she left a description of their voyage round the world before the First World War. And that's an online ordering system. And Simon Boyd, wishing you tremendous success with what sounds like a really interesting read. Um, I'm sure our listeners will be most pleased to, to get their hands on a copy. Thank you very much indeed. Well, if you missed the Illuminate Cambridge Festival last month, you certainly weren't switched on to the art attractions of the night in midwinter in the city. Distinguished artist work was being enjoyed by a huge turnout projected onto the facades of Cambridge's most beautiful buildings and even made them wobble. But one trick I was hoping to see didn't materialise, making a whole building disappear with light technology, which has been done to London Bridge in the past. Oh well, next time perhaps. The brightly neon-lit bike procession should have been enough for me. But in a quiet corner of the spectacularly lit market square, empty stalls, the special effects included a different kind of shining through. It was that of Nicky Fulcher and the Cromwell Explorer Scout Group, he turned up and provided a food and coffee bar in the open to make sure that the city's homeless got to have some winter warmth and company and to enjoy the artwork too. Well, that's all we have time for in this month's Arts Roundup. I hope you enjoyed the show and we'll tune in again on the first Saturday in April at one o'clock. I'll leave you with a spot of jazz to while away those winter blues. Let me be lonely, you won't believe me, but I...